Welcome back, everybody, to the Self Storage Income Podcast. We have another incredible episode lined up for you today. But before we get into that, huge shout out to all of our amazing sponsors Janice International, Store Local, Live Oak Bank, and Tenant Inc. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes. You guys probably hear us talking about these guys on the podcast all the time. Janice International, tons of amazing people, tons of amazing products, services, their Noki service, their R3 program, all these different aspects to help you build an amazing storage facility or upgrade your storage facility. Uh, just a fantastic group. Store local. It's honestly one of the biggest threats to self-storage is, is market consolidation and everything that goes along with that. So enter Store Local, the largest storage co-op in the world. Just amazing people again, tons of tons of awesome people there and uh, amazing solutions to bring everybody's resources together and uh, utilize those in an effective way to be able to compete and also uh, thrive in a world of competition with some of these larger REITs and the big players in the self-storage industry. Check out Store Local. Amazing, amazing opportunities there. Live Oak Bank. I don't know how many of you guys came to our live event in Coeur d'Alene just this past year, but uh, we had some amazing conversations with Live Oak Bank there, and they were probably one of the most popular uh, <laughs> topics there in our, our breakout sessions. And And people want to know. They, they want to know the financing. You guys want to know what the solutions are, what the deals look like, all these different aspects to financing. Live Oak Bank is that answer specifically for self-storage. They specialize in storage, which is just incredible. There's no learning curve for them to understand the asset. They know it. They've been there before, and they can help you see things that you might not even be seeing yourself. So Live Oak Bank, amazing. Check the link in the show notes. And last but not least, Tenant Inc., Tenant Inc. is an incredible slew of products and services, essentially, for your storage facility to help automate, to help streamline, to help optimize your business and your storage facility. They've got uh, their Hummingbird platform, Nectar platform, uh, their Mariposa platform. Just to scrape the surface here, their, their property software, the big thing about this is the API is open. So you guys can actually, you, you own your data, you can use other third parties and back that into your systems. It's not this closed system that, that only uses proprietary X, Y, and Z. You guys have total control over your data, total control over these various aspects of running your business, uh, running your storage facility. And uh, they just got some amazing products. Again, these are storage owner operators that have created and developed these solutions. And uh, it, it's just an amazing platform. So check it out. Without further ado, guys, here's the episode. Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Welcome, everybody, to Self-Storage Income. And today, we have a different, but I think it's going to be a super interesting podcast because we're going over returns, numbers, and something that we did internally to show you guys how we have delivered a 
total return of over 1,300% in the last, what, about eight years, eight, nine years? I mean, um, I, that's okay, I guess. It's all right. It's know? all right. But all right. we're going to talk to you about these numbers. We're going to tell you what occurred, how it occurred, um, and dive deep into it. Now, this was all um, presented, and one of the reasons for it was we launched our first fund, Fund One, um, that is a fund where we're buying value-add storage facilities to turn around, um, and we're taking on, obviously, investors. And so we put together performance uh, that we've done of the strategy and extrapolated it out. And to be honest, I've never done that in this way that we we have constructed it or seen it. And um, I was kind of shocked. Um, in fact, one of the reasons it was, you know, we we chose to uh, maybe not do it was I was very nervous about showing particularly individual examples <laughs> or other things and having unrealistic expectations due to performance. Um, so one of the biggest things that we did here, and let me kind of talk to you about how we set up these numbers. So out of all our deals that we've done, we've done, as you guys know, conversions, we've done new builds, but our bread and butter is this value add strategy, right? Like this is where everything has accumulated to, where we made our name, where we got um, the returns to keep growing and investing and do other deals like developing and, and conversion. So this, this is this is kind of our company's, I'd say, heart, because everything was predicated and built off it, which allowed us to do other things, which I'm going to get into on why these, how we we got these returns. But let me dive into it here real quick and walk you through some of these numbers. Um, the first thing you should know is how these numbers came to be. So you need to have context. And you guys know I complain about this a lot with syndicators, fundraisers, and people talking about numbers. Um, we see performers all the time that are talking about 20 per plus percent internal rate of returns with a sell of the asset at some astronomical number in the future years, which I'm like, well, how did how did you come up with that? Right. <laughs> and then if you totally made up exactly. And if you extract the sell of that asset out, assuming that there's a buyer that's going to pay you some huge number, the numbers don't look good. And, um, we, when we started our company, there were no investors. The only thing that mattered to us was cash flow and yield because that paid our bills and that paid us. So starting out, I didn't care about sell. We were never selling the assets. We needed to cover expenses. I needed to pay bills, to pay workers. So we designed the company around cash flow and how we yield higher revenues in cash flow. And that's really how this was all predicated and and I think how we were built and and what's taken place. So the numbers that I presented when we did fund one, which there's a link below if you want to know more about that or even watch the video that we go through fund one, you can follow that. It's for accredited investors. You can uh, join it and I and I go through 
um, individual case studies of all of them, which we're going to talk about on the podcast and YouTube, things like that. But if you uh, want to go see, follow that link. Yeah, that but, was a uh, webinar just specifically yes. that we held the other day for <clears throat> fund all one. these investors. Yeah, for Fund One. And uh, went really well. A lot of really good questions really that, good that questions. investors were asking. Um, yeah, be sure to check that out. Yeah, it was... It, it was fun to do, and it was also fun to present the numbers. I'd never, you know, really got. It was to do wild that. to actually see because I, I haven't even seen these numbers before the other day either. Yeah. So this is like a fairly new thing for all of us to like actually sit here and look at, <laughs> and it's just it's amazing to see. So yeah, we never had to because there was no investors. We never had to present information in a certain way. And once again, the only thing that we cared about was margin and cash flow. So mm -hmm. that was our total yearly and focus, how we bought facilities and everything. So we'd never really looked at it in ways that we needed to present to investors. Um, and well, it, it worked was out. cool. Yeah, yeah. kind of worked out all right. Yeah, yeah, it did. And so <laughs> how we put the what we presented together is very important. First of all, this wasn't cherry pick good deals. That's not how it worked. Every single facility that we did a value add strategy through this entire time frame, which was up into, I think, last year was included. The only things that weren't included were facilities we bought last year because they were in the middle of turnaround. So up into 2021, every facility that we had bought that was a value add strategy, we included. So what did we not include? We did not include our first three or four ones that were super small in third tier markets um, a long time ago. We didn't include those because those had nothing to do with what we buy or um, are doing now. Uh, so even though uh, in my book, I include one of those are great returns. That's actually how we got into the, we rolled one into another and, and compounded up into a huge facility. But I've talked about that strategy and everything. So those four, we didn't include because they were all under like 35,000 square feet. Um, so they had no relevance on what we're buying or doing today. So outside those, we didn't include developments. We didn't include conversions. Once again, those are not like-minded uh, assets, or not assets, but they're not like-minded strategies. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want those things to skew the results when you're talking about like our conversion project that is up for sale for over 32 million in four years that we put two and a half million into that would really skew results and that could really confuse people. So I, I didn't want to show those and have those swings because that's not the fund isn't doing that strategy. So when you're dealing with investors, when you're looking at it, it's important that you are a hundred percent transparent and you're not being deceitful, meaning you're not including things that make you look better or not including things that make you look worse. So we took all value add properties that we'd done, up until 2021, and we took across the board their revenues. What's important to know about it, and actually kind of made this a little easier, we've never sold these properties. So the prop, every property that we had, we bought, the one that I'm talking about that was the conversion that we're selling, this will be our first large facility that we've ever sold. So when we say our total returns are like 100 uh, or 13 over 1300%, that is not selling the asset. So those are based on cash flow. And how it works is like this. Let me kind of walk you guys through. First of all, because I dislike very much how some of these numbers can be represented, and I want to make sure it is really 
clear and and honest. I want to represent mainly the numbers as represented through cash on cash return. That means we are showing what we actually did based upon the money we put in that we got. Okay. And when you look at those numbers, our average annual cash on cash return was 52%, which led to a cumulative cash on cash return of over 471%. Now it should be known that some of the assets that we included were still in stabilization mode when we included this. So this actually were strikes against us. We did two expansions and one of uh, one facility we had was the first down year we've ever had because it was in a city that had extreme COVID lockdowns and our occupancy dropped. So this is including stuff that, yeah, of course, I wish I wouldn't represent or I wish I, you know you wouldn't show, but that's where it sits at that point. You know, and a year later that will recovered from the lockdowns, that's going to show better. Obviously, once the expanded facilities are they're fully full now, but we haven't risen the rates. That'll show better, right? But that's what it is. Those are the numbers um, at that point. Now, the um, total return of over 1,300%, that is based upon value. And it was really simple because we're replicating um, a fund, okay? So we said at this time, all of those facilities together, even the ones that are down, even the ones that haven't been fully um, stabilized yet, even the ones that had a bad year, what would, if we went to market and sold it at a five and a half cap, the entire portfolio, which is generous. That's we, nothing is selling at that in a portfolio of large stabilized and fast growing markets, high end facilities. Um, we would sell for a four cap, but we wanted to take what basically we say we're refinancing at this number. This is where banks, and I don't want to give just the best of the best. So we took the five and a half cap in today's market, and that led us to the 113% of a total return. Now, how we look at these returns, once again, is based primarily on the cash on cash. The cumulative cash on cash of 471% represents the money we put in that we took out from and that we took out and got a return on our money. It should also be noted that four of our best assets, we were never even able to refinance. So we have huge amounts of equity sitting in those and we haven't been able to tap into them. The reason was, was six years ago, we put those into non-recourse loans and the penalty to refinance them today was is humongous. It's like 900 plus thousand dollars. So we weren't gonna make bite that bullet. But what that does to those four assets is that means we have somewhere around 15 million unrealized gains sitting there that we could take out tax-free. That is also not included in these numbers. So when you look at that cash on cash return, right? Um, it's the real deal. Mm-hmm. This is it's not staggering. cherry picked. This is not anything. And in next year, when we actually get to refinance those assets, we get to realize all that money tax free. Our cash on cash return will skyrocket even more. And the reason why this is important um, and why we have to look at the numbers realistically, I want to look at what I actually made, what I got on it dollar from dollar. This really comes from how we 
set up the company and what we did. We didn't start taking investors until a year and a half ago. Not even that. Not even that, a year I ago. Mean, so yeah, year one full year. Yeah. yeah. And so when we look at these returns, um, these returns were made out of us trying to get really high yielding assets because we needed it to simply function as a company. There were no other fees. We didn't get fees from investors. We didn't get anything. We had a property management company. We had our assets and we had us. If the assets didn't perform, I didn't cover a property management company. And if they didn't perform above and beyond that, I didn't get to pay ourselves and we couldn't reinvest any capital. So we had to pick really good value add assets. And then we had to execute on that at the top tier. And however we executed is what we yielded. That meant we reinvested tons of money into our property management company, into technology. We focused really highly on maximizing yield, being price leaders. That was 100% of the focus. There was no investors to pay us, to bail us out. There was nothing. It was just, we made money or we didn't. And it was like, we've got to make this work. The money that we put in, we refinanced, we reinvested into it. Okay. So you are looking and what me and Connor were talking about. I want to actually take a look at this as a compounded rate of return. So how would this look if we then took all those assets in it and said, we refinanced, we reinvested, refinanced, reinvested, and we scaled to over a hundred million dollars in assets yeah. just by that. Dude, just to, to breadcrumb that and go like all the way back would just be... Oh, it, yeah. it'd <laughs> be, be so awesome, crazy to right? see. Yeah, there's got to... If you guys know any, any uh, math wizards out there, that just straight rain men to help us get that figured out, let us know. Because how we did it is we took all the facilities, which you can see in our presentation for Fund One. All, we will also make YouTube videos and we'll talk more in depth about this. We did each individual straight line cash on cash returns, and then we took the cumulative total of those. So that's, that's not taking into account the... Uh, compounded nature on that cash on cash return. Um, and this is a, a really important piece because it's that compounding nature that got us to where we are. It also doesn't take into account tax advantages or anything else. Now, it should take into account, though, that the first several years of us building our company, we didn't take anything out. And this is important to know. It's not all roses, right? How we did it paid off in the long term, but we sacrificed massively in the short term. And I'm not even saying that I would do it that way again. In fact, if I lost everything and had to start over, I wouldn't do that way again. I'd immediately start out with investors. Um, we could have yielded way more. We would have had way more. We would have done way more. So even though I think a lot of people are like, you know, and the feedback we got is those numbers are staggering, right? I, 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 I still wouldn't go back and do it exactly how we did it. I would have started out with investors. Now, one of the things though that I would have kept doing, which has led us to um, such uh, success is our fully integrated model. And this really separates us. And the fully integrated model is that we do our funding. We have our acquisition team plus wholesaling off market. We have our management and the tech stack that we use, we own. We have intense revenue management software that allows us to take a facility, measure it exactly, and know what it's going to perform. We see the spread. We can capitalize it. Now we can take all this because our numbers are exact. Our property management numbers, we know. Our marketing numbers, we know. It's all part of the machine. 
and we can look at a facility, put it into our system, and we can see the yield. And so that allows us to then compare lots of facilities and cherry pick the best ones. And so when a lot of people say, AJ, you talk a lot about that you don't look at anything that's not under a 20% internal rate of return, like that's what I'm looking for an average. If we're taking a three, four year average, that's my starting point is a 20% internal rate of return. I'm not saying that's what you should do. Make the, This needs to be very clear, everybody. That's not how I even started out. Before it was like, here's our expenses. Here's what we need to make. Um, I talk about how cap rates don't matter. This kind of explains why I don't, we don't look at cap rates. All I look is the cost and what our yield is. That's it. I look at cash on cash returns. What are we going to make from it? This was a huge disadvantage when I was, um, when I was originally showing investors, because what was happening is investors were looking at our properties and they're saying, well, you think you can get, you know, a 23% internal rate of return, right? And they go, yeah, well, I'm going to invest with what's his name. Cause he can get a 26%. And then I'm like, oh, wow. You know, there's a lot of people that are a lot better than me. I didn't know that that meant that they were selling the asset at a four cap after four years. And it was, you know, was the all roses and everything. And yeah. I'm like, oh, well, if I include that, it's no longer a 21% internal rate of return. It's 80%. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't ever, I didn't ever want to play those games, but I didn't know how to present it to investors like I should have. And this is something that we're learning and going through because to me, I'm like, that doesn't matter. We just need to look at the cash flow. Why? Because we need to look at our margin, how safe the market is, how reliable those revenue streams are, right? Once again, I'm not saying my perspective was even right. And two, when I tried to transfer that over into explaining to it investors, it wasn't, well, I should have like- done it differently. Yeah, it's kind of like in your in your video on YouTube that you kind of talk about this where you you were focused on the deal instead of the structure. 100%. You know? and so, Only the like, deal. That's all I cared about. And that was such a uh, I thought a really brilliant realization of of how in of how the owner operator investor is looking at this and then just the institutional investor is looking at this and that that differentiation between the structure, whereas the institutional investors are only focused on what that structure looks like, who's getting structure, what. Structure, who gets yeah. what, what and fees can right. I get, can yeah. I can I beat the market? Right. And then you have the owner-operator investor who's focused on the actual deal itself. What are the returns? Um, yeah. How do we make this work? Yeah. What's the risks associated with it? On and on. You're exactly right. I looked at it very differently. Um, and uh, that's something we've had to learn over the last past year. Hence, another reason why we never even accumulated a lot of these numbers and everything, because we were so focused on the deal. How do we yield? What's the best deal we can get? And I I naively thought they're gonna investors are gonna understand. We're gonna show this deal and it's an amazing deal, right? And they're gonna mm-hmm. be like, wow, yeah, I gotta get hold of it. And then what I found out was actually, no, most investors just kind of look at the offering. Right. What do they say that I'm gonna get? So the investor that went with that other deal, I went back to him and asked, did you know that that includes a sell of the asset? And with me, you got a hundred, all your money back, plus you kept the asset. You were still in ownership getting cash flow. And he had no idea. He didn't even know that was it. And so this is important for everybody listening that you need to know there's two sides to see this. And if you can't communicate that right, it's going to hurt you like it did me. Mm-hmm. I didn't communicate it good. Yeah. I'm still working on it to try to understand what investors want, how they want to see it, and how it needs to be presented. Now, there's certain things that I'm like, I'm not going to do, right? I'm not going to go show sales and so, you know, I, I don't want investors that are solely looking for that. 
I don't want pressure to buy assets that I have to sell in order for that asset to work. If mm-hmm. I have to sell the asset for the asset to work, I start to get nervous. Like, why are we really buying this? Right. Yeah. And for me, if I just focus on the margin and the revenue, the valuation, everything else comes right. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about any of that. I don't have to build it into spreadsheets. I don't have it. It all comes. And that's been showed time and time again, because to me, this is a business. It's not an investment. So I look at it as a business, yeah. right? Well, the other huge part to that is is you need to be finding those investors that fit with whatever you're doing yes. instead of trying to fit the you know square peg into the round hole kind of a thing. Not all investors are created equal. Yeah. Obviously, there's different people in different stages of life and resources and everything else that are looking for different opportunities uh, to play, you know, to place their capital and, and see returns and everything else. Everybody's got a different plan. Such a good point. Finding those investors that fit with your plan, their plan, that are all aligned. Because like you said, I mean, if you're sitting there attracting investors with how you're pitching something with this, you know, quote unquote, plan to sell, and that's not your plan. Then yeah, you're not, problems. Oh yeah, these can be huge problems. Yeah. Um, well, the other and, thing, and two, also like I didn't want to. When I looked at the investors, and I talk about this a lot, the investors are not the asset. To me, the investor is not the asset. The storage is. Now, for most people that raise funds, I mean, it's very much different. The investors are the asset. That's how they get paid. That's mm-hmm. you know what they do, and um, that was a fault. Once again, that I had when we brought investors on, it was like, listen, you're a partner. Here's the asset. I'm going to focus less time on you and more time. You know, I only care about the asset and you should be okay with that. That, that wasn't right. Like I, I, we had to restructure after the first five months, communication, different things, right. That they didn't do. So it's about finding that middle ground, but at the same time saying, I'm not going to play those games because our numbers speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. Like our 100%. numbers outperform. I mean, I, I don't see other operators that are actively doing what we do. And one of the major reasons is it, even with a cell, even with a cell, we don't have to sell and our numbers still outperform them. Mm-hmm. And so if we can sell, that's that much more intrinsic value that is being recognized, right? At a g- given time. But when I look at, when we say, okay, we're, we're, we're building our company. We we've got this idea where we want to go. Um, the resources that it took to build it, into a fully integrated system that is cohesive, meaning the technology, the optimization, operations are whatever 50, 60 plus staff that we now have full-time W-2. These aren't hired out from the Philippines, right? These are actual people. This is intellectual property. This is business structure that's taken us 15 plus years to build. Um, That is our, our actual power. That is our knowledge. So when we look at deals, we look at the same deals that other investors are looking at and for us, it's all about what we can yield out. And we can yield out of the exact same asset that other investors would be buying way more. And that's our competitive advantage. And I need to be able to express that, right? And so it's been interesting as I've gone along and as we've worked with investors um, and communicating that and kind of changing that. I think we're way better, obviously, now at expressing the real value because I don't want to cut myself short. And that's one of the things that I found that I was doing in the mind of the investors. They didn't see the actual deal. They didn't see the value of it. That was my fault because I wasn't expressing it to them in a way that they could see it and understand it. And uh, because I was stuck either out my ways or whatnot, I didn't want to do it. So it's important that I found a middle ground on saying, here's our style, here's our value, here's what makes us 
good at doing this. Here's the property type we like. Here's our strategy. And then communicate that value to investors. And that's really, really important. Yeah, and it really is. And that that was kind of one of the eye-opening things for me on the webinar the other day was was jumping on and actually seeing some of the questions that uh, investors were in there asking. And granted, this isn't every single investor that, you know, is on the face of the planet asking these questions. Um, but, you know, when you have a minimum investment of 100000 and accredited investors only fund, um, there was just some questions in there that I, I wouldn't have expected from a pool of investors like that. I would I, I just assumed that they, were, they would be far more sophisticated um, and have have the answers to the, some of those questions that they were asking. So I think that's another aspect to this is, yeah, you know, taking a step back and really figuring out how to frame this with uh, the pool of investors that you're working with from deal to deal, um, answering those questions, communicating that value effectively, um, all super, super important. And um, the the thing is too, is, I mean, this is, this is all dynamic from deal to deal, from yes. investor to investor, and you're never going to have everybody 100% scored away. People are always going to have questions. It's not, not about you know, eliminating questions or any of that, no, anything never. like that, but just being able to be fluid and be able to project that value in an effective way to whatever investor or investors you're working with. Yeah, it's really important. And, you know, when we look, even when I take this portfolio that we talk about, it's important to understand, you, you mentioned a word that I, I talk about a lot, obviously, you talk about a lot too, that's really important. These things are dynamic. So, communication can really get you in trouble with investors when all of a sudden they're like, okay, so what, am I going to get a 50% cash on cash return year one? Whoa, no, 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 no. That's not how these things work, right? <laughs> this is a dynamic process that takes time. We have to um, exercise uh, a strategic plan. We have to execute on it. We have to get the yield, right? We have a, a, a path that we're going down. We know how it's going to, how it's supposed to happen, but also as the investor, you don't, or excuse me, as the operator, as the guy buying the storage, you don't want to set up false expectations with investors that comes back to bite you. And they're like, how you presented this was, they view misleading. That's something I don't ever want to be. I don't ever want to present. So I always defaulted to just the lower end. Oh, you'll be surprised. But cash flow, the times when these returns occur, it's it this isn't a dividend stock that just simply click 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 right this is a business so the revenues come in when you look at our portfolio um we reinvested capital we had to wait to reinvest capital we had to wait to refinance some some of these facilities it took 3 years to exercise the um potential that we knew was there right sometimes it was a value add in the form of expanding the facility and that value add then was not recognized till more the final terms of a 5 year process because it took that long to expand the facility fill it up and then start charging appropriate market rates and if you say once this is done yeah our internal rate of return is going to be 25% but you're not going to realize that for basically the lifespan of the investment, you got to, they need to understand that. And you got to talk with them through that. Mm -hmm. So uh, lots of times when you're working on the deal, when you see it, it's really easy for you to understand it. Right. Um, but communicating that it's a totally different story mm -hmm. and making sure that you're doing it in the right way. So like you said, the right people are working with you, but 
that when you go into this partnership together as an investor, as an operator, that you understand that relationship, but also that it is a partnership. And so one of the things that, you know, we talk about not being boxed in, but I'm trying to, especially even more now is really help investors try to understand more on how we operate and what the expectations are when they talk about when distributions will start. Say, listen, guys, we have six months that we have to buy. We have to change signage. We have to change names. We have to turn around. If we have work that needs to be done on that facility, I don't want to give distributions out and drain the funds. Now, what other invest, uh, what other operators will do, they'll actually raise more money than they need, and they'll give that as distributions so that they can have standard distributions. That doesn't make sense to me. I'm like, why, why do you do that? Not that it's wrong. I'm not saying that. But then you're just giving investors to give it to them, but that's your pitch. You're saying you're just going to get a standardized distribution, even if it's not a real return from the investment. So there's all these things you got to think about and how that's going to play out to those investors, which is really, really important. Hindsight's 2020. Our numbers are awesome, right? But at the end of the day, the numbers that we perform, 471% cash on cash, that's not including tax benefits or anything else that's come with it. It's how we did such massive wealth creation. But that's actually not the value to me. The value is the engine we built. The abilities that we can extract value now through our process of operations, first of all, acquisitions, finding deals. We have the trust of the market. So brokers are giving us off-market deals. We're getting deals at a quarter of a million under other competitors, right? So we get an immediate acquisition, um, uh, almost a bias. Off-market deals, brokers favor us with our preferred broker network. Then on top of that, we know what we're selecting. So when we underwrite the assets, there's not a lot of questions in our mind. This is heavy due diligence. We've done it time and time again. We can move forward in confidence. That allows us to underwrite a lot tighter. We can be aggressive on the ones we should be and completely pass up the other ones. So right out of the gate, we have an, an acquisition advantage. The next stage the whole operations that come with it, right? The team that immediately moves in, training, franchise system. We talk about um, uh, the whole look and feel, recirculating tenants, getting the right ones in, dynamic revenue pricing, all in-house, all intellectual property, and all things that we've done time and time again so we know how it's going to play out, where it's supposed to play out, and we're matching it up with our models. Then on top of that, the... Um, communications, the funding, the syndicating, you know, all of this stuff, it, it, it layers on, right? That's to me the value. So yes, we see this equity created, but really it's the machine that comes with it. That is something that I actually, I don't think did a good job expressing. So when you don't have the things, right? That let's say you don't have those things, that's fine. You need to communicate with investors, on your value, your plan, your strategy, why it'll work. And you need to do that effectively to brokers, to banks, to potential um, acquisition targets, sellers, mm -hmm. partnerships, vendors. Yeah. And you need them all to work simultaneously on the same page. Well, on the other side of that too, is you can target everything that you just listed off, the brokers, the partners, all that stuff, target individuals who have knowledge and expertise in storage or in that asset class that you are going to go and 
pitch to investors about yes. because that is who your team is going to be. And when you have a team that's that's that knows that asset, those investors look at that and say, oh, well, here's this guy with all this, this experience. And he's got this network of all those guys with all that experience. Um, it's kind of like, I mean, when you've got a development or any of those other things, you've got a team of, of people, people that specialize in that asset class or in that product type or whatever that is. And you bring them together to build the best possible machine. Same thing goes on the investor side, building a business and bringing in those investors. Partner with, I mean, if it comes down to your banking, like Live Oak Bank, who specializes in self-storage, any of those different things that, again, whether it's partners, banks, any of that, the sellers, depending on how much the seller is connected to some of those um, other other industries and in within the industry itself is uh, is a huge leg up. And and something that you need to think about when you're when you're building this stuff out. Well, if you look at so let let me show you kind of how dynamic these situations can be. We we have one of our assets here. I'm looking at the cumulative cash on cash return is over five hundred percent eight years. But when I look at the overall return, there's quite a bit of fluctuations at first. We did some expansions. We had to work it right, and then those things start to scale up. And it's understanding and communicating with those partners what needs to happen within that time frame. Like you said, all right, I don't have X expertise to make this plan work out here. That's fine. You just got to find the right person. You got to communicate with them. Year one, year two, year three, you got to make sure that those expectations are correct. You got to make sure that you're lining up. You have fail safes, right? So how are we protecting our investment? How are we in protecting our investors? So do we need a qualified person to sign on the debt loan? Because we may not get debt, right? These are all the things that you need to be um, communicating and talking about. And even with me, when I look at it, it's funny, we have the podcast, we literally have hundreds of thousands of downloads and everything else. And I'm like, I feel that it's sometimes I'm just a bad communicator. Like I, I haven't ever, like we're meeting with investors. Or anything. Yeah. I've never even shown the numbers. I've never mm-hmm. shown, hey, look at, look, at the, look at these case studies that we've done. Every single facility that we've ever done this exact strategy on, we're talking about over 300% um, cumulative cash on cash return without ever selling the asset ever. So we still own it. We still own all the equity. It's still cash flows amazing. Our average LTV is under 50%, even refinancing most of these assets that are just because the value at creation is so strong. I, I never talked about that. I never went through the numbers. And you look at it and I go, man, my biggest strength, right, is what I just talked about, is what we built and how that expressed into reality or how it turned out. And I wasn't even doing a good job communicating that. So when you look at exercising these returns, you need, and when you look at achieving, first of all, you need to be able to have um, your the right people on the bus, you know, we talked about a lot, mm-hmm. but also you need to be ex- able to express and communicate with them the strategy correctly. And That's a huge one, man, is, is setting those expectations and yeah. managing those throughout the life of the deal. Yes. Um, super, super important. It's so important. And so when we look at our deals, um, we, we go through and I digest and we look at the ones that even we may have started out and we said, oh, this didn't work as good. How do we change? How do we modify that? Right. And we looked back at them. One of the things that was really beneficial to us is we had the flexibility to do so. So, you know, I talk a lot about my margin of stupidity, right? I understand and I know that I need the flexibility to execute. And there's certain things that we didn't know. Um, because 
of our structure when we started out, we had that flexibility. Make sure you have that flexibility. These things take times. We're going to run into unknown things, build into the expectations of the communications with partners and investors, the flexibility that you need to execute and um, make sure that they understand that. And they give that grace to you because you're going to need it. It's going to happen. It's not a straight line thing. The numbers that we present, it all looks pretty. It all looks pretty, but what, everything that you're missing is the reality of it, right? And you need to be able to communicate the reality of how that's going to play out mm-hmm. and what you need to do it. Not just resources, but time, understanding, all of that kind of stuff with your investors. Once again, they should you should view them as in partners, partners. Um, and that's a really critical thing to making these things work out. We're in an environment right now where we don't know what the future holds, everything from interest rates, everything from rising inflation and how that will execute or how that will translate to your execution. You know, you don't hundred percent know. So you need to buy yourself time and give yourself the ability to be flexible within unknown conditions. Oh, and I was going to say, uh, it's always going to be that way. Always. There's Always. never going to be a time there's there's certainties. <laughs> 100% no. And so, you know, one of the things that we're going to continue doing is breaking down and we're going to talk a lot more about this stuff is I'm trying to realize my weaknesses and not communicating pr- properly, but we're going to give <laughs> a lot more case studies, everything from, you know, building and say, listen, um, this was what happened, but this is how it happened. Mm-hmm. So we got these returns right? But this is the reason we were able to yield that percentage on this asset. And it, when you look at the whole thing together, it's a whole bunch of reasons. It's not one. And that's, I think, one of the biggest things you need to understand. It's not just one thing. There's a lot of things that go into getting high yielding um, returns on your capital in self-storage and in environments that constantly change and are unknown. It's not easy as just, oh, it just cash flows, we give distributions, and it's not easy as I just up rents, right? It like you you need to learn, you need the flexibility, and you got to adjust within it. We've had countless times in facilities that the plan we needed to adjust midway because the conditions didn't respond to our execution in the way we thought it was would, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. No, it is. It is for sure. And it's going to be dynamic as, as you know, we've talked about several times, always going to be changing. Um, well, and that's why in the, even in the fund. So one yeah. of the things that we did is we said, listen, we're raising this money to buy these properties. We mm-hmm. already have some under contract um, in big markets, but listen, we need, there's a whole six month onboarding period. There's all these things that are going to happen. Our goal is to do a portfolio refinance somewhere between around year three. That may be year four. That may be year two, depending on things, right? I want to build yeah. in to that. I'm trying to build in the flexibility to do it. There may or may not be a sell, but the point is that you're going to have all your capital executed. Here's risk. Here's all the things that are known that we should give all your money back. You should be getting returns. We should take it off the table through a refinance. We don't have to sell to make it work. And this is the time frame that we needed in. Um, mm-hmm. It's, I don't have an automatic sell date, right? Nothing like that. But if I can provide the investors with what they need within that time, it's okay. I don't need to sell the asset because I can give them all their money back. I can give them a great return. They get all the tax advantages and we can do it quickly and get super high yields. Then I'm not backed into a corner and I'm not forced to sell. You may not have that opportunity. You may need to get those yields by selling. 
That's fine. That's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Build it in and show we can increase rents through these partnerships. We've got a third-party manager together with them on this property. We believe that we can increase rents and revenues over a given period of time. At that point, we're going to exercise that value creation in the sell to an open market. It may not happen in year three or year four because market conditions may not be favorable. So I'm going to give myself some time to we can execute that value when it's appropriate, when we can maximize the total return. There's nothing wrong with that strategy and there's nothing wrong with being upfront about it. The investors want the return. They want the value. They want the yield, right? You need to just make sure that you're all on the same page on how they're going to get it. Absolutely. And AJ, I can't believe you haven't been wanting to talk about your 1300% you returns and things so, like that. It's just, it, it's kind of funny that, um, <laughs> never even thought that to about yourself, it. Huh? it was, yeah. I, I guess I kind of felt uh, weird too, even telling investors. And even when we did it, we went through these case studies and you're like, oh yeah. So we get, you know, 500% cash on cash. And it's kind of <laughs> like people, this is not like, don't, please don't, uh, hold me to this. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> this is These obviously the studies. goal. This, yeah. is, this, is where, this is what's happened in the past. Um, we've had none that have failed. We have none that have not produced that way, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that it won't happen. Yeah. And it also doesn't mean that it'll happen like it did in the past. And so um, you need to be, once again, I need flexibility for my partners mm-hmm. and time execution um, and understanding of the total returns. Cause that's what actually makes us successful because we could do that and exercise it for sure. But when you look at two, I think it's important to know this fund that we're talking about, um, as we just took all our assets that were over the 50,000 mark value add strategy, no conversions, new builds, that kind of stuff. And we piled them together to get our, our time. These weren't all bought in the same year. So some of these are only two years or three years into the cycle where others are seven years or eight years and one's nine years. But we prop over 50% of the portfolio in those numbers, we're probably four years into, right? Five years at most. And that trickles down. I mean, the last three years, and you guys have seen on my charts, I posted on Instagram, everything else, our growth, how many assets we've got. And you can see that although we're saying this is nine years, that time frame, which was put forth in those returns in that nine year, we probably have 30% of our assets. We're not even done maximizing yet. We haven't mm-hmm. refinanced. We haven't even stabilized. I, I mean, even just the five facilities that we haven't refinanced. Yeah. I mean, like that alone. That alone. It'll change it. It's crazy. Um, so yeah, it, it's super exciting. We're, you know, we obviously love what we do. We've worked super hard to build out the competitive advantage that we have um, and the opportunity that creates from it. And we're excited over the last two years that other people get to come along with us, right? Mm -hmm. That we actually get to share this, that other people get to participate in it too, because that's one of the major goals. Um, And we, as trying to be transparent as possible, we even made a, um, the newest YouTube video that went out was, I think it was the danger or the risk of Um, Mm self-storage. I don't, we talk about this. I don't want to be just a hype man. We had the podcast, was it last time or the time before 
that was on the risk and self storage. Yeah, we called it the end. The, the end, end of the self storage. Super yeah, we catchy, made it right? Super dramatic and stuff. But um, to say, guys, listen. Yeah. It, we. I don't want to be just a hype man. These are serious concerns that we see, and these are serious things that may be happening within the self storage world that could really change things. Well, and, and to that opportunity is going to change uh, in whatever point in time you might be hearing this podcast. These opportunities, these returns, yeah. these things, that's going to change in the future to where you you might not be able to achieve these types yeah. of, of returns at some point. And so there there absolutely will be some point, a quote unquote kind of end to what we're seeing and what we're doing, but- How I we're mean, doing it exactly. in that way. Yeah. But yeah, there's very there's very real risks, and uh, yeah, those those YouTube videos I think are very smart. Um, and, and AJ, I think you're super smart in, in the way you approach so much of this uh, with that long term vision, uh, with how you've built everything out, investing in the industry and building the infrastructure within the industry um, to make yourself relevant and to really embed and build roots within the industry uh, to have that competitive advantage that that nobody else is going to be able to build or have at the scale that you've. Uh, achieved, um, at least not in the next, you know, 15, 20 years, you know? Um, so, and then two, I mean, just looking at self-storage and realizing that, yeah, we can, we can hype it up. We can be cheerleaders for it, but mm -hmm. you know, we're not huge failing, believers in it, but yeah, not failing to actually see that, that it is still there. There are always going to be risks. hundred percent. And guys, once again, this is kind of the point of the podcast, right? We want to keep you updated um, be transparent with what we're seeing going on in the self-storage world, what's happening, changes, and we're we're trying to be completely transparent in the fact that we're going to tell you guys if there's risks, if there's opportunity, where we're seeing them, that is the point of self-storage income. That is the point of um, this all. And so, you know, we hope that you guys are finding it helpful and we're going to continue sharing results, how to, um, the path, what we've done, as well as other people within the industry. And this is going to be a big year, everybody. We, you know, we have our event coming up, the podcasts, the um, YouTube channel. I mean, we're, we're, we're pumping out a lot of information. If you guys, for us, could please subscribe, rate us, go on to um, YouTube, like, subscribe, right? Those things really make a big difference to us in what we're doing, and it'd be greatly appreciated. Absolutely, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks so much for the support. We'll catch you guys next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.